Welcome to the Littler Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Conversations related to the human resource challenges of an ever-evolving workforce. Hello, my name is Cindy Ann Thomas. I'm a principal with Littler and a co-chair of our firm's EEO and Diversity and Inclusion Practice Group. I partner with our clients in the diversity and inclusion space with a focus on advising on as well as developing and providing legally compliant training and education initiatives. Welcome to the second part of my two-part podcast dedicated to exploring one recent state's effort to take the notion of creating safe spaces for learning to a whole new level. The bill, which is being characterized as an individual freedoms bill, is attempting to guard against guilt for any learning initiatives in Florida schools and businesses. And for those of you who missed the first episode of this podcast last week, and I urge you to go back and listen, specifically, State Bill 148 would prohibit public schools and private businesses from inflicting discomfort on students and employees during lessons or training about diversity and discrimination. And during that program, with the invaluable input from my guest, Professor J. Michael Butler from Flagler University, we examined the foundational and historical realities of such a mandate. For this second episode of our continuing efforts to get our arms around the issue of mandating training sans angst, as it were. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by two special guests. First, let me introduce you to one of my dynamic collaborators in the DEI space, Andrea Cisco, out of Brooklyn, New York. Andrea is the Chief Operating Officer of both the Future Work Institute and the International Multicultural Institute, where she applies her 25 plus years of global experience in affecting workforce change on a myriad of issues that include managing and optimizing diversity, racism, cross-cultural, and generational challenges. Andrea received her undergraduate degree from Hunter College with a major in sociology and language and holds a Master of Science in Education from Long Island University with a focus on guidance and counseling. She's authored numerous publications, including one of my personal favorites, Housework, The Art of Managing Diversity. She is a co-founder of the Inclusion Allies Coalition, which is a coalition of organizations and practitioners committed to DEI within organizations and society. And she proudly serves on the board of the MAMA Foundation for the Arts, which is helping to reestablish Harlem as an artistic and cultural centerpiece of the world. I am also thrilled to have with me my extraordinary colleague, Lori Brown. In addition to being a member of our firm's management committee, she is the managing shareholder of our Miami office where she enjoys a robust practice as a result of her extensive experience in and success with defending management in all aspects of employment law, including unlawful discrimination and specifically sexual harassment. 
In addition to being an exceptional attorney, Lori has demonstrated her business moxie as the CEO of Littler's Technology Joint Venture Compliance HR, a company that developed and took to market the first ever artificial intelligence-based compliance tool for exempt and non-exempt solutions. Thank you to both of you for joining me for this conversation. So thank you, Cindy Ann. I'm really happy to be with you. And after all of these years, to see that you're still in it, I know how work, hard you're working at it. And so it is a delight for me. And so thank you for your kind words. And I look forward to our discussion. Thanks, Cindy Ann. As Andrea said, I'm also very excited to be part of this conversation. Andrea, let's start with you, my long, long time colleague from back in our Dr. Roosevelt Thomas days. Andrea, do you remember when I first contacted you circa 2000, I think it was, while as a newly baptized employment litigator in Ohio, I was put into contact with you from the Roosevelt Thomas Institute out of Atlanta to inquire about possible next steps to changing my career trajectory. And you took me from equal employment opportunity to giraffes and elephants. Yeah, I remember, yeah, certainly. That is a cultural riff from those of you in our generation who may have recognized the lyric from Lulu's 1967 hit, because professionally speaking, Andrea, you literally took me from crayons to perfume. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite movies. So alas, here we are together again, almost a quarter century later. And as we all know, the debate on critical race theory continues to infuriate so many people across the country. And even though this particular mandate is not about CRT specifically, the language is quite similar to bills that have now been introduced in more than 30 states at this point as they attempt to limit or even ban the teaching and discussion of factual history about race in the US. No discomfort, guilt, or anguish allowed. That's the magic phrase. Reactions. So, so my reaction as a learner, as an educator is that it's way, way off the mark. Learning entails some discomfort, sometimes some pain. So how we are going to legislate this, we don't know every individual who is out there learning their experiences. We are anticipating for people and hence we are cutting off the opportunity for them to learn. I, I don't know any learning, significant learning and the learning that they're talking about can be painful. There are many histories in the United States. It's not only black history, it's Italian history, it's Irish history, it's history of newcomers to the United States, certainly Mexican people who are here, the native people who are here. How do we cut off the truth of this nation and create a fantasy for people? So trying to avoid the discomfort, this is not going to work. Okay. And it's interesting that you talk about 
those truths because the premise of this foundational piece is to ensure that participants have a safe space to tell their truths and be heard. But no guilt proposals like the ones we are talking about would certainly upend that. You know, I've learned something about a uh, safe space in the past couple of years as I've had many more dialogues and conversations on race and talking about we're going to create a safe space. What I've learned is it is the learners themselves who have to engage in that. They often, because they're in a debate mode, go off and attack sometimes their colleagues and things. So we actually now have changed our ground rules and explained that it is not only facilitators who must create this safe space, but it is also the, the learners who must create a safe space for others. We want others to feel free to express themselves. Also, I, I think about safe space, it's important, but I, there's a question about, are we making these spaces so safe are we sterilizing them so that there's no learning? So we, have, we really have to be careful there. There's a book about coddling our college students and they talk about safetyism and too, too much of it. So, so are we narrowing down so much that there is not learning? So that's another concern that I have about this in the end. Right, and, and we're going to go down that path shortly because I do want to talk about this notion of coddling but before we get there, you know, Andrea, one of the early ground rules for both of us as DE&I professionals has always been to encourage learners to get comfortable about being uncomfortable. It's been a ground rule forever. And it still is. And I think it's a fair ground rule or guideline for people as they're coming into discussions, particularly now, where the discussion around race, around sexual orientation, gender is so heightened and so emotional for people that, that I think that it is helpful to say it again. Now, people, particularly in, in my area, those who are coming to the training are adults, okay? And when they come to these trainings, they already know that there's going to be sort of heightened emotion around the issues that we're talking to. So I think this helps them to modulate. Now, one of the other things is before people start the classes, we're greeting them. We're saying hello to them. We're building relationship so that, in fact, there's another comfort factor and it's with us. How do you learn without being made somewhat uncomfortable? I, I, I don't see that we do away with this rule. Fair. Listen, I can hear the doubters out there in listener land right now, Andrea. Oh, come on, Thomas. It's just happening in one little state. What's the big deal? Oh, uh, oh absolutely not. This is not happening in just one state. What we know is that 36 states have legislation out there and 14 have passed legislation around discomfort and anguish and, and these kinds of issues. For me, Cindy, and we talked about this a little bit about being a trend. I see this as a trend. I see this as a movement. 
It's too large now. 900 districts in the United States are following these kinds of policies and guidelines. Right. Uh, and Andrea, just for uh, to ensure that our listeners are, are not confused with respect to the legislation that you speak of, a lot of the bills and acts that have been passed have to do with the school context. Is that correct? Yes, they have to do with the school tech context. You know, I've spoken to people who are professors or teachers even in private schools, and they'll say, oh, you know, that doesn't impact us. And I say, maybe legislatively not, but I think uh, you are in different communities and the communities where there's no legislation, communities are standing up and telling schools what they want their children to learn. So, so it's not only legislation, it's the will of the people as well. Yes. And even if this may be the first state where the bill deals with workplace learning, it seems to me that based on what you're talking about with the trends, that it might not be the last, if not only legislatively, but for policies that private employees may be tempted to mimic. Yeah, this is frightening. This is not something that hasn't happened already. Some of my colleagues who are working in in, in different organizations have had to have their contracts. The language has been changed so that they will not speak about certain issues, not use certain terminology. Others have reported to me that they had work that had already been assigned and was pulled back. After the George Floyd murder, everybody was out there. They wanted training. They wanted to know about race. They wanted to talk about everything that had to do with marginalization of people in the workplace. We have watched it ebb. And for those who never wanted to look at managing diversity within their workplaces, they've pulled back. So we've already seen some impact. Andrea, I asked Professor Butler this question last week to get his take from a historical point of view, and I will ask you the same from a practitioner's point of view. We've been plodding along for the last 30 years or so in this space with a focus on concepts like diversity, belonging, inclusion, uh, and culture. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that when the E word, equity, started to come into play, and much more prominently with the social justice tsunami of recent years, that the war on woke started to get real. Oh, you bet it did. Because equity says, I see you. I see what you need here in this workplace. And if I'm committed to it, I am going to make sure that you have what you need to succeed, which is different than equality. Equality says it's out there, folks, go for it. Go get it, whatever it is, you have access to it. But everybody doesn't have what it takes to get it. Equity is different. And it says, I see you. It also means that as we open up and make access real for everyone in a different kind of way, 
we've got to share. The status quo has been disrupted. We are going to see different groups of people in different places. All of the people of color are not going to be at the lower levels and basement levels. We are going to see the organizations, top to bottom, begin to look different. This is also change. This is also tough to swallow. And there is a lot of objection. And I'll tell you something else, Indiana. Not only has E been added, but J has been added. So some of our companies are talking about justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. So when you start talking about social justice, you are saying, I am actively going to help dismantle the isms within the system systemic racism, systemic anti-Semitism, homophobia, all of these isms. So it's gotten really deep and really complex. So unlike words like diversity or inclusion, which sometimes get touted as buzzwords, Mm -hmm. these concepts that you're talking about have to do with, okay, I see you, but now I have to do something about that's right. Well, I see. That's right. And, and you know what? I'm happy to say that I see a movement in corporate America among our clients and among some of the best practice companies who are doing just that. What I love is the coalition of CEOs in the United States. And also I do work with Canada. There's a coalition of CEOs in Canada who have joined together wrap their arms together to work for diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's the top of the house gathering themselves together to effect action. This is really important. So concepts like equity and justice have made some folks fairly uncomfortable. Oh, oh, definitely. It says we have to, we must do things differently. We must see with new eyes, hear with new ears, and make opportunity available to all. Now, you see what has happened in in many of our organizations where young people have organized against their organizations and spoken out against them and exposed really their internal practices. They are not having it. So demands are coming from within for this equity and for this justice. So this isn't going to go away very soon. You know, (laughs) the internet has provided a space where people can collectively join together and effect change. Just think about the demonstrations around the world in the past two, three years, the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, And who was in it, we saw all kinds of countries engaged as we stood up and we protested. They did as well. Andrea, you are definitely speaking to the power of Gen Z with some of these movements there. And I think it's really important to recognize the power and the strength of that group. Very often we hear people who want to discount them and talk about them in really negative ways. They are people of action 
I don't want to be cliche, but they are our hope and they're willing to make the sacrifices. That's important. I spoke to those very issues in a recent podcast on Zoomers. So I absolutely agree. Listen, Andrea, these orders lump in a lot of individual hypersensitivities that they are trying to protect. And they seem to conflate guilt and discomfort, for instance. But isn't there a difference? Definitely. So guilt is because I have done something harmful or my group has done something harmful. And so if I've done something harmful, okay, I might feel guilty about it. But I think the legislation is saying that the trainings will make people walk away feeling guilty. Well, we definitely do not want that. You know, there's a rabbi that I love very much, Rabbi Herschel. And what he said is, we may not all be guilty, but we are all responsible. So it says, if we see anti-Semitism, racism, homophobia, and these kinds of things, we do as human beings have a responsibility not to do harm. So guilt is a waste of time. It does nothing but make you feel bad. And the other thing is we who are practitioners under no circumstances do we want people to feel guilty. I've done several training the trainers and sometimes the white males will say, oh, you know, I'm learning a lot, but I don't think I can do this. You've got to be in the discussion, in the equation. I want to hear your voice in it. And sometimes it's because they're feeling that sense of guilt. How is a, a diversity professional, for instance, do you currently navigate around prickly labels like privileged or fragile or even systemic? I'm going to tell you something. And I learned this from one of my white co-facilitators many years ago, something he would say when we trained together. He would say to the class, Andrea and I train together all the time, you will hear her differently than you will me. Okay. So if he comes in talking about white fragility, white privilege, and these kinds of things, it's one thing. If I come in right off the bat and I'm coming with white fragility, with a word attached that's negative, I feel that. I have shut down a conversation. So I talked earlier about training being a relationship. I need to build relationship with you first in the classroom. I need to be able to have you hear me and understand that that I am credible. I know what I'm talking about. And then once we can, let's get into a dialogue. And if, if we end up talking about white fragility or these kinds of things, we're going to talk about it, but it is more difficult to come in talking about that right off of the bat. Can we even really experience meaningful learning without some level of discomfort? No, I actually don't think so, but I'll tell you, there seems to be a worldwide need to squash pain and discomfort. I'm reading a book 
by Byung Chul Han, who is a Korean born German philosopher. And the book is called The Palliative Society. And I am so impressed by what I'm reading and thinking. He talks about algophobia, which is a fear of pain. And what I've learned is worldwide, we are doing all that we can to make it so that people do not feel pain. Mm. They don't feel pain. We're anesthetizing people in a sense. Yeah. And when I think about that, and I think about what's going on in the United States, particularly when I think of the level of drugs and alcohol. Now, I understand this has been exacerbated by COVID, where we are all in pain. But even before that, and his research is before COVID, what we see is this just patting people down. Nobody wants anybody to feel pain. Parents protecting children in ways that they should not. How will these children be critical thinkers if we take everything out of them? This worries me. But the children in my family, I told them all when they went to high school, college, put me on your dial because when you write your papers, I want to help you think them through. Whatever the subject is, we want our children to be thinkers. Just think of in the future, if our children aren't critical thinkers and learners and open and curious, who are we getting in our corporations? Automatons. So palliative care, I think of at the time when my mother was dying and they said to me, all we can do is give her palliative care. And so when I think of this, I think, are we a dying society? that we are cutting out our life force. Yes. It really, in my mind, it all comes together with what we're doing. We're dumbing people down in a way that I think is very dangerous. Yes. So there's a benefit to organizations in allowing some discomfort to occur as a part of the conversations in this space. Oh, absolutely. If you want viable, creative, innovative people, you you want to keep them engaged. You can't in a flat, dull environment. You know, we have joy, we have pain, we have all kinds of things. And, And we will have some discomfort. Listen, when you first walk into a new organization, there's a discomfort of learning the culture, learning the environment, learning the people. And when organizations decide that they want to engage in a diversity strategy, they're saying to the folks, okay, folks, we're about to make some changes here. We want you in this with us, not always going to be comfortable, but there's no change without this. Change is not easy. So when you're changing a culture and environment by saying that we are going to include others and we are going to talk about who they are, what they need, what they have experienced, because unless you know these things, you will make mistakes with your colleagues. Interesting remarks that you offer up in light of very recent and televised events on the show, The View, uh, in the past week when co-host Whoopi Goldberg was suspended by her employer when she 
shared some of her misguided beliefs about Jewish people as a race and the Holocaust. Instead of delving deeper into that very uncomfortable conversation with her coworkers, it seems that the knee-jerk reaction to some was to banish her for, ironically, her view. So some would argue that this was a perfect situation wherein everybody, like her coworkers and their viewership, could have benefited from leaning into their discomfort by asking more questions and gaining more knowledge. Thoughts on this, Andrea? Well, I have been squirming since I discovered the whole situation. And I discovered it on Stephen Colbert. So it had already happened. I had not seen uh, the view that morning. So I'm sitting there and I'm sort of stunned. I said, what happened? Okay, I just saw Whoopi apologize for this. And so afterwards I said, oh no, I got, I got to get on the internet. I got to look, I've got to find that episode. And I did. And, and, I, and I watched that piece several times and I was squirming on many, many levels. And I thought, oh boy. So I, I did that on the first night. The next night, open my phone, Whoopi Goldberg suspended. And I'm thinking, what? Why? My why is because Jonathan Greenblatt from the ADL had offered to come on the show and do training to explain what are the facts around the Holocaust, the perspective of Jewish people, feelings, all of this, and reactions of others. Whoopi Goldberg is suspended for two weeks, missed opportunity. Why didn't you take that two weeks with Whoopi there to show a learning situation, teach the audience, help her to better understand? She said it. There were some things I did not understand. I myself was led because we, we grew up in this country with a certain definition of what race is and who we think make up the races. So I went to the ADL, where Jonathan Greenblatt is the CEO, to look up how they define race and racism. And I said, oh, and what I did discover is that in different countries, what is considered named a race is not the same. Big learning for me. So I, who am in this, have learned something else. So this big missed opportunity for millions of people, because she has lots of followers, show the world what we need to know in terms of understanding more about the Holocaust and the growing instances of anti-Semitism, not only in this country, but around the world. Very helpful perspective. How many missed opportunities might we encounter with a growing emphasis on the need for comfort in a learning environment. Andrea, your thoughts on this topic are incredibly insightful. And before I turn to our next guest to understand the implications for legal training programs that employers undertake, perhaps you could just offer some parting thoughts about the apparent war on woke that is being waged with these kinds of no discomfort mandates. 
Well, here's what I really think. I think this is about fear. It's about fear of loss, fear of the changing demographics in the United States. And what does this mean for, for different groups? Loss of power. And I think it's that zero sum game. If I win, you lose. And so we're going to cut you off at the pass. I don't wanna sound down. I am hopeful I'm in the game. I'm looking forward to talking to many more people in a dialogue. We can lower that discomfort quickly by talking to each other, like saying adults. For some people, it's really hard. We understand that. We know how to handle that after years of, of doing this kind of work. So that's what I think. I, I walk away with hope and hoping that people will, and children will learn to understand one another. Great. Listen, I am going to bring Lori Brown into the conversation at this point, but before I do, I would just like to thank you one more time, Andrea, for joining me for this conversation. You know, I've been looking forward to it. So thank you very, very much, Cindy Ann. It's been my pleasure. Lori, thank you for your patience and welcome to the discussion. Thanks for having me. You just heard our discussion around the implications for these kinds of no discomfort mandates for DEI training programs. But I want to talk about the more legalistic training initiatives that you and I know that most employers understand is mandatory to preserve certain legal defenses. And let me preface this to bring our listeners up to legislative speed, if you will. To date, 17 states have laws that require employers to provide their employees with sexual harassment training. Of these 17 states, 11 require training only for state employees, but none for the private sector. Six states have mandates requiring all employers to provide employees with sexual harassment training. California, Connecticut, Delaware, Illinois, Maine, and New York. Florida is not on these lists, but as a practical matter, for the past quarter century, most companies in this country understand that harassment prevention training is essentially their get out of jail card. We're both employment attorneys, Lori, so I know you know what I'm talking about, but I wonder if you could walk us through this. Sure, sure. My, my pleasure. So let's back up and talk about a pair of significant Supreme Court decisions on the issue of hostile work environment, sex harassment. We all sort of know that phrase now. But back in 1998, employers were provided with an affirmative defense. If, if there are listeners out there who don't know what a, an affirmative defense is, it's a fancy word for essentially those, those silver bullets that you use factually that can help you avoid liability. Have you done the right things? And if you've done those right things, again, it can limit or even in some instances extinguish your liability in these situations. So when properly met, these serve to limit liability. That's really important to remember. Named after the cases, this strategy is called the Farragher-Ellerth defense. But here's the thing. In order to utilize this defense, an employer has to show that it exercised reasonable care to prevent and promptly correct any sexually harassing behavior. 
the key component to this, Cindy, is that not only do you have to have an anti-harassment policy, an effective anti-harassment policy that contains detailed definitions of what constitutes harassment, but you also have to provide periodic training on these policies. Mm-hmm. So with implications that extend beyond the borders of the Sunshine State, what was your gut reaction then to the bill in light of what you've just outlined, okay? Especially with respect to the goal of ensuring that no teaching can cause discomfort or guilt or anguish. That's a big question. Uh, so, so look, I have spent my entire career counseling companies in the employment context on those strategies best designed to help them avoid being sued. When companies get sued, as we all know, it's bad for business, it's costly, it's massively distracting. Uh, if you have individuals accused of wrongful behavior, it can be personally and financially devastating. So the best strategy for tackling the very real issues, whether it's racism, sex harassment, sexism, is prevention and avoidance through what I call the three E's. Here are my three E's, education, engagement, and then ideally enlightenment. So as you mentioned, training and organizations, engaging with your employees through the delivery of effective content, it's just a strategic must. It is simply good business. So hang on, that word effective. I wonder if you could unpack that term a little bit for us as a critical hallmark. Sure. So when I say effective, and if we're talking about whether it's racism, sexism, sex harassment, just by way of example, what I know to be true based on having done hundreds of trainings is that you have to engage through open discussion open discussion. In other words, exposure around those behaviors that are objectively inappropriate. Your trainings have to incorporate examples and illustrations. What does that mean? We have to talk about not using certain offensive language and jokes and references and innuendo. We have to talk about not touching coworkers or invading personal space of others in the workplace. We have to talk about sensitivities and stereotypes around such things as national origin, where folks are from. To deliver these trainings effectively, this is your question, what do we mean by effective? Mm -hmm. And to ultimately reach that third E, the enlightenment piece, you have to raise the collective and individual consciousness and awareness of your employees. My immediate reaction to that bill My immediate reaction was prohibiting trainings where you can potentially make folks feel discomfort over historic wrongs based on race, color, sex, or national origin very, very much puts at risk a company's ability to effectively engage and train its employees. Effective, we're talking about effective trainings, must take a deep dive into personal behaviors, Mm -hmm. into beliefs perspectives that require each employee to be introspective. You know, it's going to make certain employees uncomfortable. As an employer, as an employer, the objective of training, the reason that they hire Cindy and folks like you to come in, the pros, the best of the best, is to raise awareness through personal introspection and reflection. Now, I am not a psychologist, 
but I think most people would agree that that being introspective requires that we filter through our personal lens of experience. Mm-hmm. And by way of example, Cindy, and when you first called me and invited me to this very important discussion, I shared with you an experience that I had here at Littler. And, and, and think about it, we have deep experience when it comes to employment law, but we, we, we go through trainings ourselves. I went through our implicit bias training. And when I went through that training, I think there was a scenario where I was asked if I ever see somebody who, who quote, looks, I'm using our quotes for folks that are listening, who looks like they're not from this country. They look of a different nationality. And I, in the past, might immediately say, hey, where are you from? And if that person says, I'm from New York, I might say, no, 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 where are you really from originally? I've done that. And I now know that that could make somebody feel uncomfortable. But here's the thing, that I feel discomfort. Yep, go ahead. Believe me, I understand that. And Lori, many of us are guilty of that. Do you have any idea how many times over the years that I, as a U.S. citizen, and double emigre of both Canada and Trinidad have had the unintentional gall to utter the very same question. <laughs> yeah. Well, and look, I, I historically thought I was being nice and, and, and asking that question, maybe that's an innocent icebreaker. <laughs> but now what I know is, hey, that could be perceived from somebody else as, as, as my not thinking that, that they look as though they belong here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And upon that reflection, did I feel guilt? Did I feel discomfort? Yeah, you better believe I did. I absolutely did. But examining our past behavior through a more refined lens often does that. And whether as a result, you know, we feel nothing, we feel guilt, we feel indifference, When we're exposed to these examples, our reactions are inherently subjective Mm -hmm. and outside of the trainer's control. So while there are decades of jurisprudence, cases, that's jurisprudence is a fancy word for cases, right? All of the cases that the courts have, have, have decided, those cases define appropriate versus inappropriate behavior. But it's the examples where the good stuff is, right? It's the examples that we learn from and those cases that form the backdrop for how we educate and engage and enlighten. And I truly question whether companies where this bill to pass would throw up their hands and conclude this law creates the very liability that we're trying to avoid and prevent through training. Right. And so that's a very real concern that I have about this potential legislation. Worrisome, uh, to be sure. Listen, I recently read an editorial entitled Straight White Male, penned by the Miami Herald's editorial board, that the plan behind this bill is to, and I'm quoting here from that piece, subvert what we have historically considered as discrimination by essentially protecting certain people, straight white men for the most part, whose sensitivities require shielding via state policing of what teachers and diversity trainers say. Your thoughts? Hmm. I just took a big, deep breath on that one, Cindy Ann. This is as loaded a political issue in the employment law context as as I've seen 
in quite mm -hmm. some time. So to say that there are passionate views on both sides of this potential legislation is an understatement. Yes, I saw that piece in the Herald. While I can't speak to anyone's agenda or motivations for the legislation, I would say that whenever we are looking to educate and engage on topics as important as racism, sexism, harassment, history is always instructive. History will always be instructive on these topics. And it will or it would, <laughs> depending on where we land on this, it's going to be difficult to avoid compelling historical examples that add value and illustration to the discussion. Right. Looking, and if you look at this potential amendment, I, I don't think it's problematic in and of itself to say that in a training we shouldn't target individuals and that we shouldn't suggest they're responsible for atrocities of the past by other members of their race or sex. Of course we shouldn't do that. To me, where it gets dicey, however, is where the proposed amendment to, and, and this would be an amendment to the Florida Civil Rights Act, it gets dicey where it would prohibit training or instruction that causes an individual to feel, as you said, discomfort, guilt, or anguish mm -hmm. on account of his or her race, color, sex, or national origin. Let, let's pull up on that piece for a second. Might white people feel targeted when company trainers speak about the historical facts, and I'm emphasizing historical facts here, uh, like Professor Michael Butler did in our previous uh, piece, and, and so rousingly uh, spoke to last week, historical facts about racial discrimination, or could male participants in such classes be made to feel uncomfortable by the historical facts in the development of sexual harassment jurisprudence. Yeah, I I think that is the very, very real and very practical problem with mm -hmm. what, what I'm going to refer to as the discomfort clause, if you will. As you said, starting with the obvious, whether we're an in-house HR professional or professional trainer, you simply cannot control the emotional reactions of the audience. Mm -hmm. And while I, I don't think an effective training ever calls out anyone because of their unique characteristics, history, it is history that we rely upon to provide the examples that while factually accurate, just may by their very nature cause discomfort. So I, if this amendment passes, we are going to be talking about this particular dilemma a lot. Right. Uh, Lori, give us a bird's eye view uh, of how that could play out in a facilitated training session. Sure. So just by way of example, I, oftentimes when we deliver, whether it's anti-harassment training or positive employee relations, however we want to characterize that training, a very classic example comes up is Cindy, and you know what this is, the classic quid pro quo, the this mm -hmm. for that. Mm -hmm. The example of an offer of a promotion or something of value, perhaps even just keeping your job in exchange for sex or you know, some request for sexual favor, if you will, between a supervisor and a subordinate. 
and gosh, I don't want to name names here, but we've all read these cases. Um, mm -hmm. They're they're in the news all of the time. Mm -hmm. I, I, I again, I don't want to name names, but let's just talk about whether it's former presidents, whether it's beloved morning talk show anchors, former movie moguls. Even if we're talking about the most recognizable examples and we get a little bit more granular and a little bit more graphic and we talk about, you know, that that putting your hands on someone's shoulders to to give them massage or gosh, in South Florida, I use the example constantly that there are certain cultural habits in South Florida that involve more touching, more kissing, friendlier conduct in the workplace. And, and, and I can tell you from experience, as you were talking through these examples, you start to see reactions in the room. Cindy Ann, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You start to see, you know, men and women alike, you start to see the body language show you discomfort. Mm -hmm. and, and, and they're showing you discomfort, maybe not as much because of what you're saying, but because of how, of how it resonates with them, they're applying that personal lens. And let's go one step further. If we're using illustrations that are known and recognizable, if only to show progress between where we were 70 years ago versus where we are today, I've got to use an example that I know makes me feel uncomfortable every single time that I see it. What is that? The movie 42. <laughs> I love that movie. I'm a baseball yes. fan. I watch yeah. that movie every time I see it. And you know what? Every single time, that I see Ben Chapman in the coach's box, the, the former coach of the Philadelphia Phillies, when I see that scene depicted in that movie where he is hurling horrific, unthinkable, unspeakable racial slurs at Jackie Robinson when he played for Brooklyn, I have to tell you, it just, it makes my skin crawl. It just, it makes me sick to my stomach, but I watch mm -hmm. it every time. And, and, and sometimes I play clips during trainings. Mm -hmm. I play clips because I think that they just get everybody's attention. It makes it interesting. It keeps it fresh. But if I play that clip, which I sometimes do, the reaction in the room is dramatic. And it doesn't sure. matter how many times I watch it, but it's dramatic. And of course we all feel discomfort, whether we're just horrifically embarrassed by it or horrified or whatever the reaction is. We should, we're all human. And, and so expecting that we can remove that dynamic from a training environment is just impractical, if not impossible. Good call out on the humanity piece because what you're talking about, Lori, uh, speaks to the issue that these historical facts, these clips, these realities, these situations can be very triggering for anybody in the group. Mm -hmm. Because as you describe, and as Andrea uh, remarked earlier, the proposed legislation seems to require us to be automatons. <laughs> it would seem so. You're, you're exactly right. Look, all of what we're talking about originates from jurisprudence, from that long-standing historically robust body of law that got us where we are today. So that vast body of EEO jurisprudence is replete 
with cases that chronicle tragic, unfortunate factual accounts that serve as cautionary examples. And I emphasize the cautionary piece because its value is in educating the listener to avoid those scenarios. That's why we use those cases. That's how we show our audiences in a training scenario how to stay far afield of the type of conduct that is not just legally prohibited, but remember we're serving the dual purpose of attempting to help our clients not just be compliant, but to prevent scenarios that expose them to liability and ultimately just promote a healthy work environment. So I'm just not really sure how a company could do all of those things without using those actually accurate scenarios that we pull directly from the cases. Absolutely. Well, what do you think about this apparent attempt to redefine discrimination and broaden the class of eligible claimants to arguably include those who feel guilty? Well, I've, I've thought about this one quite a bit to, to come up with any other example where our clients could be exposed to statutory liability in their efforts to avoid liability. This is the sort of the irony here, and it's potentially quite the dilemma, literally a choice between the rock and the hard place. And look, Cindy, and I'm not a politician nor an activist. I, I like you, I, I'm a labor and employment lawyer who's been in the room for many, many years to see how employees react when trainings are delivered. And right. this is where the business community needs to weigh in, calling their local state senators, representatives, because this bill, what it truly does at its core is to essentially add a protected category to the Florida Civil Rights Act of those who feel discomfort, anguish, or guilt because of how a trainer talks to a group as we said, the examples used here are by definition going to create those feelings. So what appears lacking in this proposed bill is any reference to how a fact finder would go about creating an evidentiary standard for something so inherently subjective. Reading the proposed statute, literally, as I have, it appears silent as to how the EEOC or state agencies would go about calling balls and strikes on this. Right, because if this bill or others like it in other jurisdictions become law, it seems that it is possible that anybody, as we interpret it right now, could claim discrimination if they simply say that they felt uncomfortable during a company's annual training season. Yeah, and, and and that's why, I, you know, like I said, I'm not an activist, but if you are an employer and you've been relying on these trainings for many years to promote, you know, positive outreach, to get a dialogue going, to mm -hmm. have your workforce evolve, this is really why employers need to weigh in on this now. I mean, ironically, we've long touted, and this is something that I was telling you about the other day that I find fascinating about this. Ironically, we have long touted Florida as a pro-business environment where we allow employers a lot of leeway in how they pay their employees, how they protect themselves with non-competes, for example. 
uh, it's even a fairly favorable state when it comes to contingent workforce issues and, and, and independent contractor status, again, just by way of example. But Cindy Ann, I'm going to be very sensitive when I say this. <laughs> even now, when I train managers on the expansive protected categories under federal and Florida law, and you know the slide I'm talking about, where you mm -hmm. throw up the slide that has all of the different characteristics that are protected presently under federal and Florida law. I can tell you right now, when I train mm -hmm. the managers, they glaze over because it's a long list. Mm -hmm. And rightly so. That list, as you and I know, that, that list has expanded greatly over the past decade. Mm -hmm. And our, even though our Florida statutes are very late, when it comes to regulations, those protected categories are still, that's the law, those categories are growing. And so it's a head scratcher to me that we're now going to add yet another protected category in a category that is so subjective and difficult to define, let alone control. So again, it's a head scratcher for me and we are taking a, proactive preventative tool like training, and we are loading it up with so much inherent risk yes. that I truly do believe companies will start weighing the risk versus the benefits of the very activity that we've relied on for decades to bolster their defenses and better protect them. Agreed. I think it's a head scratcher for many, as is for me. Proponents, though, of this bill, Lori, will say that claims would have to be evidence-based, right, uh, and objective. But how can those purported standards realistically align with a learner's subjective feelings of discomfort or guilt? Well, the aspect of the bill where a participant shouldn't be made to feel responsible for, and I'm, I'm taking this out of the bill, the former sins, if you will, committed by the members of his, her sex, race, et cetera. That does feel like it could be objectively examined, Okay. right? You, 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 you can't say things to suggest that the atrocities of the past, uh, you're somehow responsible for that. I, mm -hmm. I don't think that's the aspect of the bill that's so problematic. It's the discomfort clause that we're now calling it, you and I, the discomfort clause. That's that's the part that will be uh, incredibly challenging. If I say in a training that we as a company will not tolerate remarks containing inappropriate sexual comments, and I stopped short for fear of offending somebody, I've missed that opportunity to ensure everybody knows and understands what is and what is not appropriate. Yes. And almost invariably, and you know this, Cindy, because you've been in the room, Almost invariably, anyone who's gone to a training knows that we're going to get the barrage of what ifs. We always laugh about the what ifs. If you have, a, if you conduct a training and you don't get a bunch of one ifs, you probably haven't done your job. And those are uncomfortable because those are almost always fact-based. So now, now what we're having to worry about is whether or not what we're saying as trainers has the potential of offending but now we have to go one step further and control the dialogue in the room. That, that to me, I, I think is equally as problematic, if not impossible. I agree. I absolutely agree. Time warp with me. Assume the bill passes. And even if Florida's doesn't, as we've all agreed, 
similar legislative and or business mandates are likely to pop up in other places. So how should employers be careful about ensuring that their current training programs don't cause employees to feel guilty or uncomfortable because of their race or their gender? Yes, if we're staying on this notion of ensuring others don't feel guilty, and we've agreed that's a tall order for the reasons we've been discussing, where do we go in terms of best efforts or best practices? Well, thought about what this might look like. I think we have to be factual and probably make an extremely deliberate effort to be more balanced. What do I mean by that? Meaning if you're going to use examples, be neutral. If you're using a quid pro quo example, speak to same sex, speak to male to female, speak to, to female to male. In other words, be, be neutral and you know attempt to be as inclusive as you can and how you distribute those examples. I would probably even go one step further and say, if you are using an example, cite the case, tell folks where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. Because I, I would also say that if you ever are in the uncomfortable spot of having to defend your training, it would be very difficult, in my opinion, for somebody to take issue with facts perhaps that you've pulled directly out of a case. But again, for, first and foremost, I would say make an effort to be neutral and as, as factual as you can be. Great. Lori, from everything that you have just outlined, it's very clear that there is a very subjective standard that seems to leave employers quite vulnerable to challenge if this progresses. We both know that, like in diversity trainings, discussions about harassment and discrimination are simply not inherently comfortable. Explicit words, insults that are fully spelled out, sexual lingo, traumatizing situations that trainers reference may be uncomfortable for employees to hear, but they are factual truths. And they are not typically sanitized uh, in ways that we do by allowing the first letter of a slur, for instance, to precede a series of asterisks. But Lori, I appreciate the way in which you have outlined the risks, the challenges, and the opportunities, and the missed opportunities for companies if mandates like these are allowed to proceed. I want to segue here to solutions, because where do these challenges leave companies? Let's talk about some preemptive steps. Well, whatever becomes of this bill, we're going to get really practical about this. Everyone needs to understand that carefully vetting your training content will be a must. You'll have to do that. Even if you are engaging a third party trainer, it's the company that will be exposed, mm -hmm. right? So this is not the time for a company to stick its head in the sand. We're, words are going to matter here 
a lot and it will be critical to to to, to very carefully vet your training and if, if i could cindy and maybe give a, a couple more examples here so the most practical things to do i i think we could look at it in four steps hmm. first we just talked about it carefully reevaluate audit your existing programs Talk to your providers, whether they be internal or external. Make sure that you talk to your providers. If you are auditing your materials, look at that aspect of your materials we talked about in terms of balanced examples. Mm -hmm. Be sure to be inclusive. Balance your examples. Ensure that any graphics or interactive materials or videos are fair in depicting men as victims white people as victims be balanced so just just I, I think that is one very 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 important practical tip the next one we we talked about making an effort to be gender inclusive i think we are uh, i maybe even throw out throw out the word gender and say just be be inclusive across all all protected characteristics mm -hmm. be more inclusive Let's let's be very careful to avoid these sort of he versus she dynamics or, you know, white versus African-American. We, we need to be careful to not sort of pit people against one another. Right. right? And, and that I think that is a, a very, very important dynamic to avoid. And then here's a great one. And I, and I have to say, Cindy, and I think you I, I've learned this from you over the years and watching your amazing sessions. And that is. Mm -hmm. If you're really there to focus on prevention, focus on prevention. Talk about techniques. Mm -hmm. Talk about, you know, ways to avoid harassment, and 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 just talk about more about techniques. You know, how can we avoid this happening? How can we surface complaints? You know, maybe talk a little bit more about process. Just making sure, particularly that managers know the prevention techniques for ensuring that these things don't happen in the workplace. So obviously what goes with that is ensuring that your managers and your employees know what to do after the fact. So that's really the process piece. You kind of dial down on the salacious or the gratuitous details and, and get to specifics on techniques. Yeah, I, I, I think that sometimes part of, of the, the, the sessions that the employees and the managers find valuable is just sort of a doubling down on process. Then that goes back to our Fairever Ellerth defense, right? Mm -hmm. Making sure that there's a defined process for folks to surface complaints of discrimination in whatever, whatever form they take. Mm -hmm. um, and then <laughs> finally, actually, I've got two more quickies. Look, I think navigating all of this without the benefit of, of outside legal counsel, I, I, I think it's sometimes perilous. I always suggest that you carefully coordinate these activities and the content and what happens in the room with outside legal counsel. Uh, I, I always find that to be advisable. And then here's my final word on this, Cindy Ann, and it, it really is so basic. And that is, I start every training by looking at everybody and talking about Aretha Franklin. I always say, what's my Aretha Franklin rule? And everybody always says, respect, respect. 
and I get everybody talking. And, and the reason that I always talk about respect is because that's the concept that cuts through it all. That's what cuts through everything. So yes. in the employment and HR arena, you know, whether we're talking race or harassment or you know, sexism, you, you name it. If you talk to folks about respect, it is the common denominator. It is the most effective way to cut through all of the differences that sometimes, you know, folks are subjectively sensitive about. But respect is something that everyone always understands, and it does cut across our differences. So if this proposed amendment passes, it will be critical to find those common themes to ensure that that main message isn't lost. If you had a bunch of folks sitting in a room and they're all offended for a bunch of different reasons and they're all upset, then that's not the objective. So I strongly suggest that we will have to start talking more about what we all have in common. And that is that we want respect from one another. Um, and that message hopefully steers a field from whatever is to be with, with this legislation, but I always think respect has to be a big part of it. And that's really the list of practical advice that I would give everybody. Look, at the end of the day, you want your trainers to be in a room to engage their employees on concepts that we need in the workplace so that the work environment is healthy and fulfilling and you know folks get to be their best versions of themselves and so uh i would say let's buckle up on this one and be ready for what happens next but this is an extremely interesting development for folks like you and i cindy Ann, who've been doing this for quite some time i could not agree with you more look i think it's important to reiterate that discussions about diversity or discrimination uh, and harassment are not, by their very nature, easy or comfortable, uh, Lori, as you have just been talking about. Uh, but meaningful dialogue is critical for work environments to enjoy a successful culture and all of the benefits that accompany such a culture, like engagement, productivity, great retention, and frankly, to your point, Lori, less legal exposure, right? But this means that we do have to allow people the opportunity to be able to lean into those uncomfortable conversations so that they can learn how to respond to inappropriate or non-inclusive behaviors, then know their role as disruptors in the workplace when they see something happening. I said it last week and I'll say it again, discomfort is not the enemy. Andrea Sisko from Future Works Institute in Brooklyn, and Lori Brown, office managing shareholder in Miami here at Littler. I would like to thank both of you again so much for joining me for this conversation. You're very welcome. Cindy, and it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I hope all of you have enjoyed this podcast just half as much as I have enjoyed bringing it to you. Please feel free to reach out to us at podcasts at littler.com if you should have any questions about this episode or if you would like to discuss any component of your organization's needs with me or another Littler attorney. Thanks for listening. 
The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.